You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are continuing through the book of Revelation. We are doing the letter to the church of Sardis. And one of the reasons why we need to spend so much time in this is because these churches are our Lord's last letters, really, to his church on this earth. As you may have heard, the book of Revelation is often called the Apocalypse. It deals with things that are sensationalized in popular culture and that are quite uh, intriguing, fascinating, awe-inspiring and scary in some ways to study. We are going to get into all of that. The rest of the book of Revelation, really, after we finish these letters to the churches, is dealing with a different era of history. And we have tried to follow the logical flow of Revelation, which I think is done specifically for that purpose, that we are first greeted with the vision of the glorified king in all his glory coming back with the sword of judgment coming out of his mouth. We then see, firstly, before he deals with those usurping his kingdom and judges them, first he has a word for his church. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, you could say that. And remember we talked last week about the image of the bride and the bridegroom. Christ loves his church. He wants his church to walk after him, and one day there will be that wedding feast. But there are still some things we need to deal with in these churches. We are in the letter to Sardis now, so we're going to read this. Let's do what we do. I'll read the whole letter, and then we'll get into this. So it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know, not know at what hour I'll come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's talk about the church of Sardis. So as you know, we started in Ephesus and we're sort of working our way clockwise really around Smyrna, uh, Pergamos, Thyatira, and now we are at Sardis. So as you can see, we have Philadelphia and Laodicea to finish off with. And there'll be plenty of surprises in those two churches as we go through. But now Sardis. Sardis was an extremely wealthy city, really fabled for its splendor, for its decadence, and it was part, in the, going back to like the 6th century BC, it was part of what was called the larger kingdom of Lydia at this time. Proverbially, Sardis was associated with wealth and folly, those two things, and I'll share with you the history why. Sardis was a fortress city. You can see here, these are the remains of Sardis today, built upon high rocks, and because of that it was very well defended, it was very hard to attack, it was almost considered impregnable at this time. However, during the 6th century, the Persian king Cyrus the Great, you'll be familiar with him, he, he's pivotal in the Bible, we read a lot about him in the Bible. Cyrus the Great besieged this city, however, there's a few engravings of it, but he was unable to really scale the walls of the city, so he besieged, what they do when they can't attack is they generally encamp around 
the city and try and starve people out. You don't allow people in or out of the city. That was the idea. However, they caught a lucky break, and this is why the city is forever associated with folly. Whilst they were camping around Sardis, one of Cyrus's Persian soldiers was scouting, and he saw a guard at the top of one of those cliffs lean over, and his helmet fell off when it rolled all the way down to the bottom of the cliff. And obviously he thought, well, that's, that's it, he's lost his helmet. And then he noticed a very short period of time later, this same guard appeared at the bottom of the cliff, retrieved his helmet, and then very quickly appeared back up on top of the cliff again. So this showed this soldier that there's obviously a way, a secret way or a way that they know to navigate these cliffs that can get you up to the top and the bottom. So later that night, this soldier on Osiris' command took a, a unit of soldiers and they found that path and they arrived up the top of the cliff and they found it completely unguarded. The Sardinians were not expecting anyone to get up there. They didn't have any guards and they took Sardis really without much of a battle at all. That's how the story goes and that is why it's forever associated with folly, being unprepared, being unwatchful, uh, enjoying, considering yourself too safe. And another reason is why, almost unbelievably, a few centuries later, when Antiochus III, so that's the, I think that's the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, the famous person we read about in the Bible, it was his father, he was also see, uh, besieging Sardis. They did the same thing. They just camped down in their castle fortress. It took him a year. He was trying to starve them out. And eventually one of their guards did the same thing. We don't have the helmet part of it, but he, he saw someone observed a guard finding a, a back way up the cliffs, and he also led his soldiers up the cliff and took Sardis again without fight. So twice in their history, this has happened to them because they were overconfident in their defences. And it's this background, I believe, that Christ is alluding to when he says, I'll come like a thief in the night and you won't know what's happened to you in judgment. This is the idea that's being alluded to here. So that was the history of Sardis. Religion in Sardis was, again, as we've seen in all of these Roman cities, was a mixed bag of many different religions. Sardis, though, was very famous. It had one of the largest temples to Artemis. And you can see the temple here in front of those cliffs. Uh, Artemis is a god that was associated with the Roman version, was Cybele. Do you remember when we talked about Pergamon? I went through all those Babylonian religions with you. Cybele was the Roman mother goddess again, so we see this popping up all over the place. However, in Sardis, she had a great following. They were very well known for the famous part of the temple here was actually the priestesses. And this is interesting because they were referred to as priestesses, and they are referred to as she in the most of the writings. But when you read all the historical sources we have, you'll find out these were in fact castrated men who were the priests, and they were made to dress in women's clothing. There's quite a few engravings of them in Rome. In the Roman world, they were called the Gallus. They were a unique class of people. You can see one of them here. They kind of have a slightly feminine feel to them. It was their job to be in charge of instituting the worship of Cybele, which often included, sort of, I'm not going to go into it, but it was very orgiistic in these temples, and it was their job to do this sort of thing. They were Cybele being the mother and fertility goddess. You can imagine what goes on. But this was, again, the sort of thing that was happening in this city. This is what they did. We actually found the remains of a Roman gala, one of these people, in uh, 2002 in Catterick in England. And in the tomb, still dressed in women's clothes, jewellery, 
bronze and a couple of stones in their mouth that were used for ritual burials, those sorts of things. At the parades, they used to have yearly parades where you would hold up the mother goddess and walk through the town and people, worshippers, would come and follow afterwards, very similar to what I would say some festivals with modern-day equivalents of the mother goddess do today. One of the things that they had to do is that those closest who wanted to approach the, the image of the mother goddess, they could not have any... They had to have these plain white robes, basically. They couldn't have any soiled garments on their robes. This is, again, another reference that Christ is making when he talks about there are some who have not soiled their garments. He's alluding to the history that they would have well known about in this time. So that is Sardis. Now, we also know that the church actually did survive there for quite a few centuries. This is first century AD that this letter is being written. We have uh, remnants of a church there right up until the fourth century. There's also one very famous church father, a guy called Melito of Sardis, who was a great figure in the early church. He wrote some very important works on the date of Passover and these sorts of things in the early church. You can see here that building in the forefront that looks slightly different to the temple columns, that is a, a Byzantine church that was built right next door to the temple of Artemis. And you can imagine the competition <laughs> that would have gone on with those sorts of things, but that, that's quite often what they did. That was Sardis. Religion, obviously very important to the life in these times. So let's get into the text here. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now remember, again, as always, every one of these descriptions is being taken from the initial uh, description of Christ that we saw in Revelation chapter 1. And here it is emphasizing the fact that the seven spirits, we talked about that, remember, seven being the number of completeness and the Holy Spirit that we're referring to here, and the seven stars were explained to us as actually being the seven churches. So it seems that as Christ is writing this letter to Sardis, he wants to emphasize that he is the one who has the fullness of the Spirit, and he also is the one that holds all of the churches in his hands. There's nothing that goes on in the church that he does not know about. There's nothing that will not be brought to light. There's nothing that does not come under his watchful eyes, as we've seen many times in this letter. Now, remember the church is his bride. He loves his bride. He wants to purify his bride. The bride will one day be presented as holy spot and blameless to him. He knows the spiritual condition of the church. And the hard thing as we think about that is it's easy to talk about the church broadly, collectively, but the church is made up of all of us individuals, isn't it? Those of us who are born again. And that also means that Christ knows every one of our spiritual lives, personally and individually. He knows where we are, he knows what we're doing, he knows what we need, he knows whether we're in sin, he knows whether we're following him honestly. These are all things that are quite, well, I find them quite sh shocking in one sense, they keep you accountable in many other ways, but something we do need to remember. Christ knows all and he sees all, but... If you're his, if you're born again, if you're a blood-bought believer, remember he's not seeking to judge you. You're already his judgment. He paid for your sins, but he does seek to have intimate fellowship with you. And that does require that we confess our sins to him in that sense. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. It's a hard verse to hear. I'd imagine that when this, church, when this letter was read to this church, Quite a few people would have been stopped in their tracks. There is no word of commendation to this church, as we've seen in the other ones. There's always something he usually says. You know, I know your works, you're doing great at this, you're not doing very well at this. 
He has nothing to say like that here. He says, I know your deeds. This is referring to the things that they are doing in this city. They have a name that would indicate they are alive, but in fact they are dead. So this is probably referring to the fact this was a very active church. They were well known in the city. They were doing a lot. You could probably wager that they were involved in the community in many different ways, involved with all the civic functions. They were great at socialising, probably contributing funds. They're a very wealthy city to many of the different causes that the city was fundraising for, charities, all sorts of things. But, again, that's not it. What seems to be hinted at here is that they were more connected, more concerned, rather, with building their own name. And this really is exactly what we saw right back at the beginning of the book of the whole Bible. We call it the sin of Babel. Do you remember the Tower of Babel when man refused to obey God and spread out over the earth? It says in Genesis 11:14, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. That is what man has always wanted to do. Make for himself a name. However, this is a very good reminder to all of us in the church. We live to glorify one name and there is only one name and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the exact person that this book, the apocalypse, the unveiling, is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You remember we dealt with that in the first session. He is the name. John 3.30, John said that he must increase, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. That means the more we get ourselves out of the way, the more we glorify Christ. The Sardinians, it seemed, had this backwards and they were concerned with building their name of their church in this particular city, and thus Christ was being uh, taken off the throne. Zechariah 14.9, a verse that speaks of the future, that will tie in, we'll study this more when we get to the end of this book. It says, One day the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and listen, and his name the only one. There'll be no other contenders with his name at this time. It is him and him alone that is who we serve. This means that the moment we are fooled into thinking that our church is so great or that this particular teacher is so great or that uh, this ministry is so amazing, we won the risk of this Sardinian error where we are more concerned with our own names than with the name of Jesus Christ. As Paul said when he was preaching on Mars Hill to those Greek philosophers, in him we live and move and exist. In him. That's it. This is why we preach him. They had a name that they were alive Externally, I'd imagine, if you had asked a man to give an assessment of this church, he would have walked around, he would have gone in, interviewed people, seen this church, seen all the things they were doing, and he would have come out and said, this church is a wonderful church. That's man's opinion, but we know man does not see on the inside. Man only looks at the outside. They would have said the church is doing well. God sees beneath the service, and he gave that his assessment, but you are dead. That must have hit people hard. Jesus diagnoses the real problem with this church. Now, when he says they are dead, this is a couple of things this could be referring to, uh, probably both in some respects. It could refer to those in the church who were not, in fact, saved. We've talked about this a little bit. We have to understand going to a church does no more make you a Christian than if I walked into the hospital, that would make me a doctor. It's the same concept there, that, if you understand what I'm saying. That is it. To be a Christian, you give your life to Jesus Christ. You repent, you ask for forgiveness for your sins, you acknowledge that he is the king, he is the one we read about in Revelation chapter 1, and one day he is coming back. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not 
the external trappings of religion that can, in fact, be so dangerous and actually hinder people from seeing the true light of the gospel. As Paul said to Timothy, there are those who hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And we see a lot of this around the world today. That is one way the term dead is often used in the scriptures. Or sometimes it is used to speak of a true believer, but one who is currently living in sin and is out of fellowship with the Lord. We would say that is another way that dead is often used. Verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Now this is Jesus' command to this church. And the first thing he says, and I like this, I'd imagine that when he says, wake up, this is a booming voice. Wake up. He said, you're dead. Wake up. It's almost like he's shouting at this church. You can imagine almost the awe-inspiring fear that would have come into their hearts. Come back into fellowship with me. Strengthen what you have. Remember what you were given. Repent and start following me again. Just like Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he said, Awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead. Let Christ shine on you. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now, he wrote that in the first century. You could equally write that about our world today. Make the most of your time, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. And what that means is things are stacking up against the knowledge of God. The message of the gospel is becoming even more unpopular than it often was in parts of our history. But that just means, as we've always said, as the world gets darker, the gospel shines brighter because Jesus Christ is the light of the world and thus by extension his body is supposed to shine brighter too as that city set on a hill that people are drawn to. This is why it's so important. This is why he says, wake up. This is why Christ is giving these strong words to these churches because he wants his church to be doing what it is supposed to be doing. The church was pretty far gone in Sardis, you can get from these descriptions. But remember Christ loves his church. It's not too far gone. It was not impossible for them at this point to come to the Lord and say, I'm sorry, and the Lord has open arms when you do that to him. He's like that prodigal, that father who runs down the road to greet his lost son, throws his arms around him, kisses him on the neck, puts his robes on him, brings him back into the fellowship of the family. That is, that is the God that we're serving. We must have those two pictures always as we talk about these sorts of things as the church. But he wants them to repent of their sins and to live. He wants them to start walking in obedience to his word. Now he says, your deeds were not found complete. It's a slightly awkward phrasing here, but the idea seems to be that all these things that he's talking about are works that are not being done as a fruit of the spirit in the church. They are being done of the flesh and thus when they come under the judgment of Christ, you remember when Christians come before the Bema seat, which is this where your, reward, your works are judged, basically, they will just be discounted. They just get, they're burnt up. They're, they're done for the wrong reasons, the wrong motivation. And it's probably indicating at this point that these works, you see, were not an outworking of their relationship with Jesus. As we've often said, that is what the works are in the faith. First is Jesus then you work the works for Jesus. And if you get that the wrong way around and you put works as the center, you're going to miss Jesus, which means you've actually missed the whole truth of what we're trying to do. And you've missed the gospel and those things will just be burnt up, it says. So he asks them, remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received 
Uh, we'll read just verse 3. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. Therefore, if you do not wake up. So first he asks them to remember what they've received and heard. What is this referring to? Quite simply, this is the message of the gospel, the preaching of the word that they had from the apostles, what Jesus has said, everything that they've already had that's gone before them, that faith that was handed down to them by the apostle John and many other people at this time. Remember what you've received and heard. Remember what Jesus did, what he said, what he said would come again. And this is the same message I believe he wants all of us in the church. Sometimes it's so easy to move away from the simple things of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's easy to forget that he came to this earth to do certain things, to testify to certain truths, that there is a future that is coming that is guaranteed because of what he's already proved has gone in the past. This is what we are here to preach, to tell the world about. Remember it, he says. Very easy, and I imagine even more easy in a city like Sardis, to get caught up with the trappings of everything that's going on and forget that part that is so central to our faith. He asks them to remember what they've heard. And then he says these, again, challenging words. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. Now this is the warning. So he's he's identified the problem and he said what's going to happen. At first he's also offered an opportunity for people to wake up and come back to him, extended his grace to them, and he says, for those who are unwilling to do that, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. If you do not hear the call of Jesus Christ to wake up, there will be consequences, basically. The rest of the book is going to show us these consequences, but these are not really for us in that sense. He will come like a thief, and you will not know when. Now this means, who doesn't know when something's coming? People who are not watching. You see he's referencing the history of of Sardis here. There were enemies at the gate. They knew there were enemies at the gate and they still weren't guarding their walls properly. They still weren't watching. And this is very similar to what he's referring to the church here. We know there is an enemy in this world who is attacking the church, the message of Jesus Christ, and thus by extension anyone who stands in the name of Jesus Christ. We talked about this when we looked at the persecuted church. Those people who just by naming the name of Christ are killed because of that name. This is the real enemy in the world. And he is almost saying to the Sardinians, you're doing exactly what your forebears did in this city. There's an enemy at the gate and you're not concentrating, you're not focusing, you're not even considering him a threat. And thus, something bad is going to happen. But he here, obviously, Jesus is saying, I will be the one to deal with this if you don't deal with it. Spirit-filled believers, those of us who are in relationship with the Lord, who are following him with our lives, who are dedicated to him, we are to be watching There's a number of things the Bible talks about that we should be watching for. First and foremost, the blessed hope. We watch and we wait for our wonderful saviour, Jesus. But it also says we are to watch ourselves, we watch our own lives, that that we do not enter into temptation, that we don't fall off the path, that we don't get drawn away, that we don't damage ourselves. It also says that we are to watch our brothers and sisters around us, As a body, we're all connected in that sense. We're not individualists. We don't have our own game. We look after each other. This is part of the pastoral ministry. This is part of the body ministry. All these things are playing together as the bride of Christ. It also says that we are to watch the world around us in the light of God's word in Scripture. We interpret what is going on in the world 
We call this the signs of the times, the cultural clues. And when you start to do this, one of the most fascinating things you'll find is that there is not a cultural battle going on today. There's not an argument. There's not a politics, not a government that is in some way not connected back to the struggle that you find written about in the Bible. Everything, the word of God versus the opinion of men, those who are building their own name, those who want to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the cosmic battle that we have here. This book is going to tell us how that cosmic battle ends. We already know, those of us who know Jesus Christ, but there are many who don't. And this is the issue here. Those who are not watching, judgment comes as a thief, just like those soldiers scaled the city and took the city without them even really realizing what was happening. Now, whilst there is a historical reference in the sense that Sardinian history proves this happened, as with most of these churches, they speak to us in the present day and they also speak to a time in the future whichever generation is this last final generation that will witness these things. And this imagery is carried forward into the eschaton, into the end times, as we would say. Let me read to you first from Paul's uh, letter to the Thessalonians, which is a, a a letter that Paul wrote that deals with these things. Notice the similarity of the language here. Thief, light, darkness, wise. I'm going to read to you a few verses here. Listen to this. It's a powerful piece of scripture. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord, just to clarify, is what we are going to be reading about in Revelation. That is the time period of the day of the Lord. It will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is strong imagery that's being used here, and it is that of a spirit-filled church who is awake, who is sober, who is on guard, who is clothed in the armour of God, whose faith has assured them that God has, God's love for them has already secured the ultimate victory, the ultimate salvation, and our message is to tell that people to the world. The night is not for us. The night is for those who are not watching, and judgment will come upon them suddenly. This is the history future history of the world. Now we must ask ourselves again at this point, because remember this is directed to the church, this letter. Is that a picture of the church today? What I just described as opposed to what Paul just described there. Because it seems to me, tragically as I can say it, that sometimes we seem very confused about the very things we should actually be experts in. Sometimes we, we seem very confused about his coming. We seem very confused about his purposes for the nation and people of Israel. We seem very confused about what these signs of the times are, about the nature of the Bible itself. We seem very confused about basic Christian beliefs. We seem very confused about how we should live as Christians, about sexuality, about ethical issues, about politics. We seem almost as confused as the culture is on every topic that is pushed in our face today. Ad nauseum, you could say, we see these things coming up, don't we? All of these things, I believe, are symptoms of not holding fast to the word of God. And I believe truly that Christ is saying to a church like that, as he said to these Sardinians, wake up, simply wake up. 
But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even within this city, with everything that was going on, every temptation they had, there was a faithful remnant of believers in this church, as there always is really in every church. I I believe these seven churches were selected because actually if you take them as a whole, you'll find representatives of every one of these churches in every church pretty much that you find around the world today, and that's why they've been selected. We talked about a bit of that in the introduction. There was a remnant of faithful believers, and if you think, there must have been a hard position even within a church, it must have been very hard and it probably was quite a lonely place for these believers who were standing firm, who were not involving themselves in the Temple of Cybele, who were not interested in being involved in everything that the church was interested in. Those very things that Christ said, I know what you're doing, you appear alive, but you're actually dead, therefore repent. There were some who heeded his advice, there were some who were already doing what he was heeded. This was the faithful remnant. It says they have not soiled their garments. That's, I'm going to be honest with you, that's a very polite way that that's been translated here, if you understand what I'm getting at with that, the strong imagery that is being presented here. The picture that we find in the Bible often is that clothing is used to represent salvation, in the sense that often you'll find this imagery that you are given robes of salvation, garments of salvation, it's pictured as uh, a white and spotless robe, it's just great imagery for that. And often people who are not saved are pictured as being naked or having dirty robes. These are the two other images that we have. They're either pictured in filthy rags and then upon coming to Jesus Christ, their sins are washed away and they are given garments that are fit for the heavenly abode. And it's described as white robes. I mean, it's imagery that we're talking about here, but that is the idea behind this. Let me read to you just a bit of scripture that uh, uses this exact imagery from the Old Testament. It's in uh, Zechariah 3. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove these filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with these festal robes. And then then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with clean garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And this is again the imagery here of we seen the garments being taken off, representing the sins being taken away, the righteous clean ones being put on is representing Christ's righteousness being given to us, which is the only reason we get to heaven. Remember that. Salvation doesn't mean that we're a better class of people, we're a better person than anyone else. All it means is that we've put all of our hope into one who is a better person than anyone else. And it's that one name again, it's that same person, the unveiling, Jesus Christ. And it says, these people shall walk with me in white, They shall walk with me in white. The promise here is that those who have kept themselves from this defilement in this city, and thus all throughout church history really, this remnant church in Sardis will have unfettered, uninterrupted fellowship with God. This expression, walk with me with God, is alluding back to the story in the book of Genesis. You remember right back in the book of Genesis where God created Eden for for his creation, mankind. And it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's that imagery that is so intimate that you're walking with someone. And obviously in Genesis, this was after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, so they were hiding from him now. But the imagery was still there. God came to do what he usually does with them. At the end of this book in Revelation, we see a similar thing. It says there'll no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. 
It's a very similar analogy. So close that you're walking with him, so close that you'll see his face. The ultimate reward for the faithful believer who does not soil his garments or who does not compromise on these issues is that you will have a deeper, more personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And that is a motivator for the Christian life. And for many of us, if we stand there and we hear that and we think, well, that doesn't sound like the biggest motivator. I'm more interested in the rewards. I'm more interested in the crowns that people talk about, the streets of gold, all these sorts of things. Then I'd say you're probably falling into the error that we've already addressed many times in these churches and you're making those things the primary part of your faith, whereas Jesus Christ has to be the primary part of your faith. Then this is really an indication that you can you're only as intimate with Jesus as you really choose to be at this time in your Christian walk. It's just like personal relationships. If you don't really care too much what someone says or thinks, but you know them a little bit, but you kind of do your own thing, you're not going to have a pretty deep relationship with that person. If you love the, the, the Lord, you accept his word as true, you know that he is the king, and you spend your life following him, trying to work out what it is he loves, what it is he hates, what he requires of you, it says that he will disclose himself to you. If you obey his commandments, you will get that imagery that is pictured here as walking with Jesus Christ. And obviously in the future, it's referring to in the real sense that we see that. But that is what we're talking about here. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And again, this is not worthy so much in the sense that they're really, really great people. It's that they have actually got the salvation of the Lord and they are intent on following the Lord. So this does seem to be an actual reward for those who are dedicated to following him. I was going to sum it up simply. I would say these are the people who are simply interested in the things of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think this is the attitude that's being expressed here. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He was clothed in white garments. As we've talked about already, these are the garments that are fit for the heavenly banquet. Do you remember when Jesus was telling that parable of the wedding feast? And those who were originally invited, it says they were found not to be worthy and they weren't wearing the appropriate attire to enter the banquet hall. And this is the picture. They did not have the garments of salvation on. And that is the only way you can enter into the banquet hall. That's the, the imagery that's being described here. And then he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. And boy, has this verse caused some trouble over the years in the church. Opens up a whole can of theological worms, i.e., is this saying that you can lose your salvation? If you trust everything into Christ, is this saying that you can lose your salvation and that your name can actually be blotted out from the book of life, etc.? And this is a massive theological issue. I'll be frank with you, I don't think this is the verse to really get into that. There are other verses that you can have those discussions. Throughout the Bible, you'll find a number of times these books being mentioned that are used to obviously record certain things. The end of this book, we're going to see it. Revelation 20, verse 12. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. This is that same imagery. Nothing that anyone does is going to slip under the radar. There is nothing that is hidden from Christ. And every judgment he makes, no one will be able to say, you've made a mistake there, because everything is recorded. And only those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, only those who have trusted in the blood of Jesus and are his, part of the true church, born-again believers, will be the ones who get through. 
Revelation 20, verse 15, if their name was not found written in the book of life, they'll be thrown away from the Lord into the lake of fire, it says. This is a serious thing. This is why, as we go through Revelation, I've been constantly trying to emphasize the place of the king and the fact that this is the final era of history when Lord, the Lord's grace, eventually, this period will stop and he comes back to take his kingdom. That, that is what we're dealing with here, ultimately. However, I believe as, if you use this verse to start talking about salvation and these issues, you actually get off track because you're actually then speaking about what the, t- the text does not say. If you notice, it doesn't actually talk about that. It says your name will not be removed from the book of life. Most likely, this is actually a very common Hebrew uh, figure of speech where you emphasize a positive by stating it in the negative. We, we've, been, we've seen this many times in Psalms as we're going through this. A positive point is made by denying the opposite. And with a little bit of historical detail, this can actually become much stronger. Most important cities at this time, particularly something like Sardis, they would have had an official register kept in the main citizens' hall, the central hall, of all of their citizens. And it was customary in these times to honour certain citizens, usually those who had contributed funds to public buildings or had done certain different things, and you would either highlight their names or you would write their names in gold, and there's all these different ways that they had. Their names would be read out at roll calls, at festivals and things like that. However, it was also the case that, that you could have your name removed from this citizenship registry if you committed a crime against Rome. And many of the crimes that we talked about in some of the other churches, a crime against Rome in this context could be a refusal to bow down to the statue of Caesar and burn a pinch of incense. So it's very likely this was something that was a very real problem for the Christians. Because as we said, most of these civic functions involved having patron deities that the Christians would not have been involved in. So they ran a very real risk of being removed from the citizenship of these cities. So I believe the actual intent of what we're reading here, this promise, remember this is a promise verse, not a warning verse necessarily, is saying something similar to this. Because of your faithfulness to me in this world, you are being removed from the book of the citizens of this city. But that same faithfulness that is causing that to happen will in the future guarantee that your name is eternally secure in heaven, a place where you will never be thrown out of. That's what I believe really the essence of this promise is getting at here. Luke 10.20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And Hebrews 12.23 talks about the church being registered. He usually uses that word there, registered in heaven. It's the same concept. I believe it is a verse to reassure these remnant, these faithful Christians that they will be with the Lord in glory. And he says, I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. Reminds me of the verse of Jesus in Matthew 10, where he says, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Very strong verse, again. But understand the principle of what it's saying here. If you confess Jesus Christ, this is why we have baptisms, we have that time of public confession. But it's, it's more than that. If you deny him, he will deny you because you haven't availed yourself of what he offered you to get you there. That's basically what it's saying, it's saying here. It's not, I believe, talking about the poor Christian who's being beaten and persecuted, trying to deny his name. This is referring to someone whose life has made a positive rejection of the message of Jesus Christ. He can do nothing but reject them because the only way to get in would have been to have those wedding robes, those garments that were given to you when you accept the, 
salvation of Jesus Christ, and they do not have them because they denied him, thus they will be denied, and they will go to the place where God is not. That is why. This is one of those questions, how could God send people to hell that we see so much in popular culture? When you think about it in these terms, their whole life has been screaming that they do not want to be in a place in a life and in a relationship with God, and God will thus give them over to that life at this time, but for those of us who, who want to be in that relationship with the Lord and we have accepted his salvation, we will be with the Lord eternally. It's a very sim simplistic way of putting it, I understand. But that is basically some of the essence of one way of thinking of it here. This is an incentive for those in Sardis who were standing against, obviously, the mockers. They were standing against those who were probably ridiculing them, standing against those who were wanting them to engage in all these different things that the city was offering them. And they know, and they said, no, we're not doing that. One day... The king himself will confess our name to the Father. That is the promise that we have here. This one, he will say, was mine. He's faithful. Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's the words of Jesus in the Gospel. You see, our confession for him here on this earth may cost us a lot, should cost us a lot. We're promised it will cost us a lot. We're a very blessed period of history, but for many people it does cost them more, even their own lives. But the promise is, one day, his confession of us before the throne of the Father will lead to us inheriting everything, his kingdom. That's, that's really what's being emphasised here. So the command for us, again, is to make sure we are not busy building our own names, to make sure we are not busy with the external trappings of religion, but to make sure that we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, we are watchful, we are examining our own lives, we are studying the Word of God, we are living the Word of God, and ultimately we are anticipating and joyfully expecting the arrival of the great King, the one name, Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I believe quite simply the Spirit is saying, wake up. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.